Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No Will today. He is in New Orleans at the Saints game flying solo today. I'm calling this scary Saturday. It was in week three because we watched Arkansas nearly lose to Bobby Petrino. And that Arkansas pass defense is in deep trouble without Jalen Catalan, who's out for the year. Miles Slusher was expected to be back. Then he wasn't. Uh, yikes game all around, I thought, for that Arkansas that Arkansas pass defense. We saw Florida barely hold on against the USF squad, who was 2-10 and 10 last year. And I think Auburn fans realized on Saturday that a scary season could be in store after all. Scary Saturday. Could probably apply that to Georgia on almost any Saturday as well with the things that they're able to do and just go into any SEC venue and dominate the game. Let's start with the, the only game involving two ranked teams, at least that involved an SEC team. Number 13, Miami. Eh. Yeah, not number 13 team in the country. And number 24, Texas A&M. Um, yeah, I guess I said this was the lone game involving um, two ranked teams that involved an SEC team, but we should probably include Missouri State's FCS ranking in there as well. Um, we won't do that today, though. Credit A&M for winning ugly. I mean, real ugly. This was a grind to watch. If, if you stayed up and watched this 9 o'clock Eastern kickoff time, this was... Uh, a pretty rough overall game from an offensive standpoint. And if you were holding out hope that the Aggies were going to all of a sudden flip the switch with Max Johnson as a starter, I think you were disappointed, but AM was dealing with a ton of depth issues, four dudes suspended with curfew, two of which were defensive backs and they lost two more to targeting yet somehow for whatever reason, Tyler Van Dyke wasn't able to get into any sort of rhythm with his pass catchers. That was an area of concern for Miami going into this one. They were pretty bad on the road. Even that drop at the end where it, it didn't even feel like Miami really had much of a chance to come back in this game. Credit the AM defense for stepping up. They were bend, but don't break this whole time. Let up nearly 400 yards of offense, but somehow no touchdowns. Credit some pretty conservative play calling, I thought, from Mario Cristobal for that as well. Um, and that offensive staff, I shouldn't say that. That's Josh Gaddis as well, the offensive coordinator. And m won this game, even though it only had 264 yards of total offense and really did not get anything going downfield in the passing game. Had one scoring drive in the final, what, like 45 minutes of this one. But it's a win. And after you get embarrassed like that, that's all you can ask for. Max Johnson gets the start, as was kind of widely expected, reported throughout the week. Um, it still feels way too often like the only chance AM has to move the chains is, well, for lack of a better way to say it, Devon A-Chain or Anaya Smith making somebody miss in space instead of, you know, maybe being able to, to get protection to make plays downfield have something schemed open where a guy catches the ball in a ton of space. It's just, it all feels like it's up to those two guys. And maybe that'll, that'll change a little bit when Evan Stewart comes back. I don't necessarily know that that's the case. I do feel bad for, for a chain and, and tank Bigsby, who we'll talk about a little bit later. I wish I could place them in better offenses that actually have some threat of a passing game because neither of their teams really do right now. I don't think you can feel good about AM's passing offense heading into sec play. And that style of game worked on Saturday night. And that's all that matters in, in, in the short term for AM. I, I do think Max Johnson gives AM the best chance to win. I still think he's probably more decisive than Haynes King. AM needs that right now. Even if Max Johnson is just kind of one read and go, 
that's still better than the alternative, which was Haynes King kind of holding back in the pocket, even though there wasn't even a ton of pressure that he was facing. The the stat that kept getting thrown out there on the athletic about 24 dropbacks and App State never even blitzed him and, and it still was as ugly and as inefficient as it was. It wasn't necessarily that case with Max Johnson, and that's the good news. I think AM didn't suddenly show by beating Miami that it's suddenly a contender. You know, the alternative still would have been a lot worse. You could have started one and two with that brutal start to SEC play on deck, and instead you beat what's considered a top 15 team, according to the polls. That's what counts. In in the meantime, we'll wait and see how that plays out the rest of the year because Miami definitely looks flawed. They look like they have some strengths, but even Tyler Van Dyke, who's probably their best returning player, looked a little bit lost at at certain times because of those lack of pass catchers. But AM gets credit for being able to, to step up. I thought Antonio Johnson played phenomenal. That guy played his guts out in that one and so you see some of the plays that he makes with a, a pretty banged up AM secondary and you love that that guys were able to to step up and recognize that they needed to be every bit of that on saturday night for AM to be able to avoid that one and two start the good news aggies get to kind of move past all of those jokes that were made on game day you've even got luke combs out here trolling the aggies thanking jimbo fisher for the 1.5 million dollar donation to his alma mater i mean yeesh. it was not the best uh saturday morning but it was a much, much better Saturday night for AM. And now you get to really move past it because you got a prime opportunity against an Arkansas team who is uh, sitting there with a, an obvious weakness, in my opinion. We'll talk about that a lot more with the, with the midweek pod and talking about whether or not Arkansas is going to be limited as a result of that pass defense, which I probably didn't talk enough about because I've been talking a lot about how much I love Drew Sanders. But on the back end, the Aggies could have a, a potential mismatch to be able to exploit Arkansas in that game. But we'll dig into that more in the midweek pod. The 330 CBS game, number 22 Penn State at Auburn. Oh, boy. It was ugly. It was ugly. I'm going to try to not do the thing where I talk about Brian Harson's job security with every single Auburn loss, because I think this team is going to lose like five games and you're going to get really sick of hearing me talk about Brian Harson's job security. If that's the case this year, but yikes, bad image to watch all of that orange filter out of the stadium in the midst of a 41 to 12 loss. The first time you have a big 10 team at Jordan Hare, and that's the result. Why did we get to that point? Is it just as simple as losing the turnover battle, which Auburn lost four to nothing. They came into that game trailing four to nothing in the turnover battle. Um, I, I don't necessarily think you can just put it on that. And some might, I think you could point to the protection issues. You could point to the poor decisions, a lack of defenders getting off of blocks. All of those things, in my opinion, contributed to that. And it's not just as simple as change these four plays. And and that's the way that this this game would have been even or Auburn would have even won. No, I don't necessarily think that's the case. You can get away with a minus four turnover margin when you're facing the likes of Mercer and San Jose State. There's a reason why Auburn, as they showed on the broadcast, was the only team in the country to be 2-0 and despite having a turnover margin of minus three or worse. And it was actually a minus four. Um, Penn State, however, was not giving them those opportunities. I, I said that Sean Clifford would open the door at some point. You would look back on what I said that in the midweek pod, and you'd say, yep, 
Connor was right. He opened the door. And the only time he really opened the door was when Owen Papo trucked him and the ball scooted out of bounds. And I actually even had a foot and mouth tweet where I said, welcome to the SEC, Sean Clifford, totally forgetting about, of course, the bumper pool hit that happened last year in the Outback Bowl. And Sean Clifford got totally rocked in that game. But Sean Clifford played well, all things considered. It was the Penn State ground game that really took over, though, with Nick Singleton. Um, they, they ran over that Auburn defensive front that we knew coming into this season had depth issues. Those, those backs are really, really good, and they don't need a whole lot of space, but they're running through some big holes. And I felt like that was a byproduct of, of Auburn not being able to get off of those blocks. It, it is hard to force turnovers if you're the Auburn defense. If you lack depth, and you start losing that battle on the other side. You're dealing with short fields and whatnot. Tough to find a solution for that. I don't really know where that comes. At halftime, if, if you were watching the game on CBS, Jenny Dell asked Harson, should we expect to see more Robbie Ashford in the second half? And instead, <laughs> directly answering the question, Harson says, what I expect is we don't turn the ball over. And then, don't you know it, Finley kicks off the second half with the ball getting hit out of his hand. They fall behind by three scores because Penn State is immediately able to capitalize on that. Then they turn to Robbie Ashford, who threw a pick in the red zone where the DB just read his eyes the whole time. And you're kind of left wondering, so this is it? This is the option? When we fall behind by three scores in a game? That we, we turn to a guy that, look, I, I like Robbie Ashford and think that he brings a fun element to this offense, but – that's kind of what you're hoping is going to be able to bring you back in this game as a guy who didn't have an FBS snap before this season. That's not great. And everybody's probably wondering how far down the totem pole is that Calzada? If he's not even getting into this game, and he said afterwards, if you see some of the quotes that came out, I know Justin Hokinson had some of this as well about talking about, yeah, they had, they had considered it and it just, they'll consider it during the week. And I, he must not be there. He must not be reliable at practice, and it must be pretty rough because they're lacking options right now. And TJ Finley, look, I, I, that's part of the problem with this team, but I, I don't necessarily think that you could turn the offense over to Ashford or Calzada and trust that they're going to all of a sudden take care of all these deficiencies. Putting in Ashford isn't going to really fix the weird play calling wherein – or the running back rotation, whatever you want to call it. Tank somehow went the entire second quarter without a carry. What? Like your best player in a, a huge game against a, a defense that you know is going to be really difficult to sustain scoring drives against. And he doesn't get a carry in the second quarter. And I realize you want to get Jarquez Hunter involved. You want to rely on that one-two punch. It was Bigsby who got the work in the first quarter and then Hunter who gets it in the second. But still... That just cannot happen. That didn't happen in this game last year. I mean, Bixby got 20-plus carries in this one. It was a huge part of them staying in that football game because, yeah, you'd ideally not want to turn it to Bo Nix on the road. That's why you have your best player, and you hope that your offensive line can get some momentum going. And instead, this one, it just felt really herky-jerky. It was one step forward, two steps back for the Auburn offense. I, I, I just I have a lot of questions about this team. I, I still do. They, they don't have receivers who can separate. When they need third and eight, it almost felt like the best play was hoping that Finley would step up in the pocket and pick up a first down with his legs. He did that in a couple of instances, and you're like, okay, all right, TJ Finley's figuring some things out. And then he just makes a mistake where he doesn't sense backside pressure, and he gets the ball hit out of his gigantic hands. And you're left kind of wondering, all right, what? 
what does this offense turn to? What does this offense turn to when things get tough? And look, I, the, if, if you want to rely on that as, as your offense, you're just hoping that the play breaks down and that your quarterback can make some things happen with his legs. I don't really think that's a sustainable offense. Just ask LSU fans about that in the first three quarters of that game against Mississippi State. I'll get to that in just a second here, and I promise I'll give LSU its love. I was asked a few times in the preseason about what a miracle season would look like for Auburn. And I know Will and I always joke that you never sleep on Auburn. You never do, right? Because the second you sleep on them, they turn around and they 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 put together a miracle season right in your face. But it's just a team with a lot of holes. It's a lot of holes. It's a lack of talent. And that's on Brian Harson. It is. I've praised the way that he has handled everything post-coup. And he deserves credit for that. He really does. But what he doesn't deserve credit for is putting together a losing roster. That's kind of what it feels like this team has. They lack depth. They have a couple of guys who you feel really good about. And I feel bad for, for Derek Hall because he's a fun player to watch. And, and Papo, you see the things that those guys are doing. And I, I even like some of the pieces in the secondary. But then you just kind of look across the board and you're just like, man, this is not necessarily a roster built to hang with the big boys. Maybe they'll surprise a big boy or two. They're going to have to with that schedule. It's brutal. It's it's absolutely brutal. They, they should be in a favorable spot against Mizzou to bounce back. But, man, I, I don't know. They still don't know the right plan for Ashford either, which, you know, it felt like they were bringing him in right after Finley would do something good. And it almost seemed like they wanted Finley to feel good for a minute. And so they wanted him to – then they would put Ashford in as if to, to let that process and let that good feeling – sit with Finley to, to let his confidence grow. And instead it felt like they put him in, in some of these tough spots and it killed the momentum of the offense. It's a difficult thing to juggle a two quarterback system. It really is. I wouldn't mind seeing the offense turned over to Ashford. I think he gives you a better chance to win. Even if that does come with some growing pains and those interceptions are still there, by the way, TJ Finley is throwing interceptions at a clip that's even higher than Anthony Richardson's last year. Not great. Not great. You won't fix this Auburn team by just saying, oh, we'll, we'll protect the football better. We'll start to win the turnover battle. It's not that easy. The issues go beyond that. You don't lose 41 to 12 at home without having some serious deficiencies. And uh, I, I worry about what awaits this team in the SEC West. Speaking of the SEC West, Mississippi State, LSU. Hand up, LSU fans. I said all week that MSU would go into Death Valley and win. I felt good about that for about three quarters. This game played out in a really similar way that I thought it would. But I love that fourth quarter we saw from LSU. I, I, I thought that was really, really impressive in all areas of the game. Once Austin Williams muffed that punt, everything changed. MSU went from getting the ball back up 16 to 10 to giving it to LSU, basically in the red zone with a chance to take the lead right there. And then, of course, they did. We saw actual offensive balance from LSU, and and I think maybe, dare I say, they found an offensive identity in that fourth quarter. They started this game 0 for 8 on third down, and then they found the unguardable Madden play. You know what I'm talking about. It's the little quick out. It's that quick out that if you just say, I'm going to keep doing this play, and you're going to have to come up with some way to try and defend this, and we don't, I don't think you can. And it worked. And Jay Daniels was like, okay, I'm going to find Malik Neighbors on this. I'm not going to panic on third down. I know that's there. I know he's going to be able to get separation. And Mississippi State could not stop it. Jaden Daniels, gutsy performance, I thought. He stepped up. He delivered those on-target throws. 
Armani Goodwin had that backbreaker for that that just kind of did MSU in in that moment where they really needed to stop. And even though the LSU offense was bad for the majority of that game, I think it's fair to say, I actually came away super encouraged by the fact that LSU fought in the fourth quarter once again, in, lost in the shuffle of that really embarrassing loss to Florida State. They fought in that game too. They just had a really embarrassing ending. The defense was the group that kept him in it though. B.J. Ojolari answered the question I've been asking about Mississippi State amidst my hyping of, of the Bulldogs in year three with Mike Leach. That is, are we sure, are we absolutely sure that they can protect Will Rogers in a post-child cross world with two new starting tackles? Because there wasn't a dude on the field better than Ojolari. And even when he didn't get to Rogers, it seemed like he was always speeding him up or pushing him into somebody else and impacting the game. And you see the value of having a game-changing edge rusher. It is such a feat to have a guy like that out there. And it's not easy. It's definitely not easy to have a veteran out there who knows he, he's going to win every single matchup on the outside. And in the fourth quarter, man, Ojolari was whipping that offensive line. It wasn't even close. I think that's partially why Mississippi State has been so willing to run the ball more with this team to try and take some pressure off of those new tackles. Yeah, they'd only allowed three sacks in the first two games. We brought up the concerns about Johnson, the new left tackle, and how he was the worst-graded pass-protecting pass tackle in the SEC, according to PFF. That wasn't necessarily something that a lot of Mississippi State fans, I think, were – we're, we're hanging their hat on saying, oh man, it's 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 really rough out there and, and we're going to get smoked in this one. And then you kind of see what it looks like against an all-conference type of type of edge rusher. And it was ugly. Make no mistake though, this is a huge missed opportunity for Mississippi State. I, I thought McElroy accurately assessed this entire thing. As much as everyone loves to dunk on Brian Kelly when he loses and they love it, man. It's, it's ridiculous. It's actually, it's, I'm already sick of it. <laughs> I'm not the biggest Brian Kelly fan of the world. And I think he says some things that are really stupid, but I am already sick of this. It's still a year one coach with some pretty low expectations. If your win total is what? Seven and a half. Compare that to year three with Mike Leach. They've got a year three quarterback with a ton of veteran receivers and a year three defense with the same coordinator, a coordinator who I'd add, look, respect the three, three, five. I think Zach Garnett still did some really good things in that game. He could be on the move soon. And I don't know how much longer you're going to necessarily be able to say we have a defense that we feel confident in. We know that's been really tough to come by for Mike Leach. And right now I still feel good about that defense, even though they had that bad fourth quarter where they just all of a sudden couldn't find that answer on third down in those key spots to be able to get off their field and give their offense a chance. And that was a missed opportunity. I mean, Mississippi State was knocking on the door of the top 25 and then to see the wheels kind of fall off late in that spot in Death Valley. That's that's a setback. That is a tough setback. LSU is going to be a brutal team to put away. They are. They, they fight. Brian Kelly's right. They, they they do stay in and fight. Even when it feels like nothing is going right for them, you look up and you realize, huh, they're in this. And if that's going to be the case, maybe they will sneak up on somebody. Maybe they will sneak up on a team that is in the top 15, or and, and they're going to be able to say, hey, look, you counted us out. You shouldn't have counted us out. Maybe Tennessee will be that team that they could sneak up on, a team that hasn't necessarily – had to, to play on that primetime stage as kind of the hunted yet. Maybe else you could sneak up on a team like that. We'll see, though. Um, I, I do think they have some limitations. That's okay. 
They're, they're going to have some limitations if they can't get to the quarterback. That's that's the thing. We've, we watched them get to the quarterback against Florida State. We watched it happen again against Mississippi State. And even without Mason Smith, who everybody was raving about coming into the season, I still feel really good about that LSU front and those edge rushers that they have, most, notab- most notab- notably Ojolari, of course. Um, but yeah, LSU, nice win. Really nice win. Beat a team like that, and you that's how you gain support. If you're Brian Kelly. Okay. Lopsided one, real lopsided one. My goodness. Number one, Georgia went into South Carolina and beat the brakes off the Gamecocks. Credit to South Carolina, only team in the country that can claim it could score a touch that. It, oh, let me start that over. <laughs> Credit South Carolina, only team in the country who can claim that they scored a touchdown against this Georgia defense. So. That's a win for South Carolina. It was against third and fourth stringers in the final minute when it was 48 to nothing. But still, credit to South Carolina. Total beatdown. Total beatdown. South Carolina couldn't even control the, the students from waltzing into the end zone. I have no idea what the hell was going on when that happened. I was I was sitting there yelling like Shane Beamer, get off the field. What are you doing? Why are you so lackadaisical? But it was kind of a microcosm for the day that was for South Carolina. Go figure that South Carolina did not allow a single sack. It did feel like Spencer Rattler had his fair share of pressure in this game. He definitely had some frustrating decisions as to be expected. The entire Spencer Rattler experience was kind of summed up in this one sequence where he makes this perfect throw to Jaheim Bell left sideline in the first quarter. But then immediately after, Rattler has the wheel route, and I think it's the Juju McDowell, and it's covered. Malachi Starks has it kind of sniffed out and Rattler says, you know what? No, screw it. I'm throwing this. And then Starks makes the better play on the ball. He's been fantastic. He's a true freshman for Georgia this year um, and, and, and turns it the other way. And all of a sudden that flips and South Carolina's momentum is gone. And any sort of window they had to at least be a little bit frisky in the first half kind of went up in smoke. Too many times we watch Rattler do this, and we know that you just cannot do that with the predetermined read stuff against this Georgia defense, which, oh, by the way, still allowed the fewest points of anybody in the country through three weeks. South Carolina fans are frustrated, and I get why they are. You were the ultimate good vibes team in college football in the offseason, and you just had pretty disappointing showings on both sides of the ball to kick off SEC play. Beamer was not amused after the game when he was asked if he thought his team quit. I understand why he responded the way that he did to that question, uh, especially in the heat of the, the heat of the moment. Sometimes, gosh, you, some of these some of these guys who just ask these questions, I'm just absolutely blown away. I'm like, do you, how do you how do you think this is going to happen? Uh, answer: Do you think Beamer's just going to be like, yeah, my entire team quit on me? It sucked. No, that's that's not the way this works ever. And Beamer would never come out with an, an admission like that in that spot. Um, South Carolina was out five defensive starters. Better days are ahead there. But there was a sequence that was uh, pretty telling, pretty frustrating, I thought, for the Gamecock defense. Nicky Minwari is South Carolina's true freshman safety who's been really getting a lot of praise from the coaching staff. He's a stud. He gets hurt. He goes to the medical tent. And on the very next play, South Carolina's his his safety lo- kind of locks into that man in motion, and he fails to pick up a guy named Brock Bowers running right up the gut in the seam. You know how that turned out. I'm gonna love on Brock Bowers for a second here. I know I've done that a lot, but I just want to make sure that we all could appreciate just how freakish he is. And South Carolina fans saw that up close and personal on Saturday. On that play, 
He had two defenders at midfield, one with the angle to at least trip him up. And then the other was basically parallel with him on his backside. And yet I had zero doubt in my mind that Bowers at midfield as a tight end in that spot was going to the house. No doubt. I think I even said out loud just to myself, he gone. (laughs) I mean, he is unlike anybody I've seen since I've been doing this job for this reason. And and I'm I'm not saying that he's he's better than Kyle Pitts. I'm not saying that because Kyle Pitts, I think, had better ball skills for sure at the tight end position. But the way that Todd Munkin uses Bowers is incredible, and it continues to blow me away. The pop passes, the reverses, the quick hitters. He's a tight end. You don't do that with a tight end. You're not supposed to be able to flex him out and do all these different things and use him like your Swiss Army knife, but that's what he is. And you know what else I love about Brock Bowers? He loves to block downfield. Mike Griffith talked about it before last season, about how they compared this guy to George Kittle. You know what George Kittle loves to do? He loves to block. He loves to actually be physical, not just be a receiver who kind of plays the tight end position. Brock Bowers ain't that. He's just a dude. And I think that's what this Georgia team does really well is block downfield. And they don't get enough credit for that is those receivers who really create that space. And every single time you're seeing, you're, you're saying, oh, man, Kenny McIntosh has so much space on the edge. Or, you know, I know A.D. Mitchell wasn't playing in this one, but, oh, you know, this receiver, how's Lab McConkey getting so open on the edge? Why, why is his bubble screen so effective? Look at the way those receivers block. They care. They take so much pride in that. And Bowers, even though he's a, he's a tight end and he's asked to do that a lot, still takes so much pride in that. I give him a lot of credit for being able to do. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the case here that I was very, very wrong to drop Stetson Bennett in my, my preseason quarterback rankings. Messed that up. I did. Because now I keep thinking each and every Saturday – He's got a pretty favorable path to the Heisman, doesn't he? He really does. Maybe he just needs to boot and rally every single game. <laughs> a lot was made of that. Kirby said he had too much water. And it could be, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to be underhydrated in williams Bryce, which, as Marler always says, hottest place on earth. Apparently, Stetson Bennett, a little overhydrated. Happens to the best of us. Maybe Stetson has just figured out this sense of calm that really wasn't there the last two years. And part of that is maybe because he's not looking over his shoulder in the same sort of way, but it does look like he's physically getting better. I mean, he, he, the way that he just broke ankles on that fake that he had, I mean, I, I don't think that 2020 Stetson Bennett does that. I don't think he has the confidence in that spot, but he doesn't second guess himself at all. And this Georgia offense is so much better as a result with him playing that confident. And he doesn't have this this grenade play, which a lot of quarterbacks do. And even sometimes Bryce Young kind of has that play where he's just like, man, that, that's, that wasn't the smartest decision. Don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that Stetson Bennett is better than Bryce Young. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that this is somebody who is very quickly risen to the short list of quarterbacks in all of college football. He is, and I was dead wrong about that in the preseason to say, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical that he's going to be able to handle all the things that he's going to be asked to do with this defense, maybe not necessarily being as good as it was last year, which so far so good on that front, but I'm I'm blown away. I'm blown away, and the rapport that he has with this group of receivers is why Georgia is the best team in, in college football. It's not. I mean, this, it didn't matter at all that A.D. Mitchell and Eric Gilbert were out. Jalen Carter was apparently limited with an ankle in this one. 
get this. Kirby is now 28-2 against the SEC East since 2017. Silly, man. It is absolutely silly to watch what this team does on a weekly basis. I know Feinbaum said they're the new Alabama. Uh, hard to argue with that at this point when they go into an SEC town and just take its soul the way that they do. Okay, it's been a minute. It's been a minute since we've had a Texas Pete ad read. We got one. We got one. Texas Pete is back with us. So excited to be working with Texas Pete again. I love Texas Pete so much. There's nothing that allows me to settle into a day more than being able to have my eggs in the morning and have my, I, I throw my avocado in there. I get a little spinach. I get some wheat toast and I just douse it in Texas Pete. I do this every single day. So let's take a, a, a quick timeout. Talk about some of these spicy plays by Texas Pete, that is. Texas Pete has the spice and flavor that's kicking this football season up a notch. If you haven't tried the original hot sauce, come on, what are you doing? You listen to this podcast, you haven't tried the original Texas Pete hot sauce, what are you doing? Or their new traditional barbecue sauce, run, don't walk to grab yourself a bottle today and visit texaspeat.com for recipes and hot apparel. Plus take 20% off your order with promo code Saturday down South. That is all caps, all one word. Win big with Texas Pete when you sauce like you mean it. Let's do one thing I like from the rest of the games here. South Florida against Florida. Oh boy. One thing I liked was that Florida avoided total embarrassment with another late defensive stand. Give credit where credit is due. Florida, as many people pointed out after the way this played out, pretty pretty close to 0-3. Pretty close. Now, they, they made that great play at the end of the Utah game, and I am not trying to take away credit for them. They, they absolutely deserve credit, but this one did not go according to plan at all. And they avoided that potential disaster situation by going into overtime, maybe because of a bad hold on USF's potential game-tying field goal. I have no idea. <laughs> Go back and watch the replay of that. I don't know how that kicker nearly made it with how bad the hold was on that play. I mean, just it was like a rugby kick or something like that. Incredible. Jalen Kimber has that pick six for Florida to make it 24-10 to in the middle of the second quarter, and you're thinking, all right, Florida is about to roll. And all those concerns about Richardson and the defensive depth came to the forefront. Richardson had one Really, really bad interception with just footwork that will not be on his NFL draft film reel. They will not be. Forced the throw in the middle of the field. It felt, dare I say, Emory Jones-esque. Is that too harsh? That might be. But the real bad one, the real bad one that made you think, oh gosh, this, this upset might be in the works. Middle of the fourth quarter, Florida's trailing 28-24 to after allowing 18 straight points from USF. Florida marched down the field with the ground game. And in the red zone, Richardson throws a fade, and it's a bad one. Picked off at the worst possible time. Richardson said afterwards, because at the time, I'm thinking to myself, what is Billy Napier doing? Why in the hell is he calling a fade route? I'm in that spot, when you've just marched down the field with the ground game, and, and Jordan Rogers pointed out on the broadcast as well, we found out afterwards, Richard Richardson said that he checked into the pass play because he thought the defense was gassed and he liked the matchup with Shorter on the outside. In Richardson's defense, he completed that ball to Shorter earlier in the drive where Shorter just went up and made a play where you're reminded this is why he was a five-star. I mean, that, that that's what it was. It was one-on-one. I'm just going to trust my guy to go make a play. Richardson did that again, and he did that again to Florida's detriment. But Richardson deciding that that was the time for a goal line fade was troubling. 
And it was also kind of strange to see that it was even on the table. I get it. Billy Napier wants to be able to trust his quarterback to be able to make some of those decisions in that spot. I'm like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trusting you to throw, to throw, to throw to an open receiver in the end zone. I just, he doesn't have the touch in those tight areas. And I think that's partially why he's sitting there without a touchdown pass at this point. I mean, three weeks into the season and he's had some of those decisions that are, you're just like, Oh my gosh, you, you cannot rely on that passing game in, in those spots. And that's you, you, the only time you feel really comfortable about the Florida passing game is when there's a big passing window to throw into. And even sometimes then you're just like, man, this is, this is not easy. And he makes it look difficult. Sometimes Florida stuck with the ground game. The next chance it got after that though. And it made sure it did not make the same mistake. Again, there was no goal line fade to be called in that spot. You can do that against USF. Probably can't do that against SEC competition. I thought Richardson was going to have a bounce back game in this one. And I thought we were going to be having all the flashbacks to what he did last year in that game in Tampa. And that did not happen. He looked like the same guy that he was last week. And some of it is play calling in Billy Napier. As much as they seem like they are in sync off the field, they have this good understanding, this good rapport that you would want your quarterback and your head coach to have. Man, I, I don't know that Napier really sees the way to get him going. These high percentage throws aren't there. Richardson needs more of that. And I, I also think at the same time, Florida could stand to take a page out of the old Miss or maybe the Arkansas playbook. You, you need to be okay with being predictable sometimes. Florida is good enough up front on that offensive line, and so are their backs to be predictable and to say, we're going to run the ball three quarters of the time. Trevor Etienne, Montreal Johnson are a lot of fun to watch. And it seems like the offense should be centered around them and not Anthony Richardson. And I don't try, I try and not have a knee jerk reaction, but this is three weeks now that, that it has felt like that with the exception of a few exceptional plays from Anthony Richardson, it has really felt like the offensive identity should revolve around those two guys and that ground game in Osiris Torrance. Man, he is turning in an all-ICC type season, and that is a huge addition that Florida has been able to have and why they they feel a little bit different up front than they've had. I know Cole Kubelik has pointed that out. I think the Florida team's best plan of attack moving forward and the way that they fix this offensive rut that they're in, they need to rely on that ground game more. They need to be willing to set up the play action and and be willing to accept that they're not going to have a balanced offense. I, I don't think they will. They have a daunting matchup next week against Tennessee, but it's also a matchup against a Tennessee team that does not give one crap about time of possession. And if you're Florida, you say to yourself, let's keep this Tennessee defense on the field. Let us wear them down. Let's not give them these short fields where they can capitalize and all of a sudden you're down 7 nothing, and then you turn it over and you're qu very quickly looking at – a two possession deficit and you're like, Oh man, now we're in obviously throwing situations. No, no, no. Use that ground game, truly test that Tennessee defense. And if they can actually play complementary football, that is Florida's best plan of attack, which we'll talk a lot more about that, about that game in the midweek pod. But right now the frustrating thing for Florida is that every Richardson throw looks like it is out of rhythm. Again, zero touchdown passes on the season. It's not a coincidence. It's not. And he's he needs to find that touch. Billy Napier needs to find those spots to get him right. Because if they're going to be eight and four, seven and five, even, you need more out of your quarterback. That defensive depth is going to continue to be tested. I think it was tested in this game, even a game in which Gary Bohannon wasn't great. 
the, the former Baylor starter who's at LSU wanted to play at linebacker. I mean, he wasn't great in this one, and, and still it felt like USF had a chance in this football game, but Florida is able to avoid total embarrassment. Much better to be at 2-1 and one than sitting there at 1-2 and two going into that game against Tennessee. Okay, number 20 Ole Miss against Georgia Tech. The one thing that I liked in this lopsided matchup, shutout victory for the fighting Lane Kiffins. Um, one thing I liked, Ole Miss has a QB1, and it's Jackson Dart. Was wrong about this one. Thought Luke Altmaier would be the guy. He got one snap in meaningful action. The only time he got out there was because Jackson Dart lost his helmet on a play, and so he had to come in. Total beatdown. The crazy thing is you would assume that Ole Miss had the passing game rolling early because usually when Ole Miss dominates like that under Lane Kiffin, there's at least some sort of balance. Yeah, they've had games where they've ran, they've run for 250 yards and it's really been more about the ground game than the passing game. But this one was, I mean, not balanced in the, in the slightest. Jackson Dart made some nice throws in this one, but Ole Miss just played bully ball. That's all it was. Evans and Judkins, they are, I mean, they are a nice one-two punch. They really are. And they can rely on those two moving forward. Only four of the first 30 plays of the game were passes for Ole Miss. 316 rushing yards. Even Jackson Dart was dropping the truck stick on that defender instead of going out of bounds. Love to see that. One thing I noticed, though, maybe I'm looking too far into this. I thought Lane looked miserable. <laughs> Anybody else notice that watching this? He looked pained. And I wonder how much of that was because he didn't really feel like he could trust Jackson Dart and his decision-making. They didn't have to worry about that with how they were able to establish the run. But after that, that Dart interception, <laughs> Tom Luganville talked to Kiffin and was like, hey, you know, what did Jackson tell you about what he saw on that play? And Kiffin told Luganville, he didn't do any talking. I was doing the talking. You could sense Lane's frustration. He's trying to prep him because that schedule is going to get a lot more difficult. And even in a game in which they win 42 to nothing, Kiffin has seen the rigors of the SEC West. And he knows that there will be defenses that are way better than Georgia Tech, which, gosh, how are they still this bad with Jeff Collins? That's, that's a depressing fan base to have to – to, to have to probably talk to right now. Just like, man, I, I don't know what the what exactly the end game is for that program right now, but it was bad. I mean, they, they just do not have the dudes. They don't really have much of a chance to be able to, to stay on the field with the big boys, which for now, that is what Ole Miss has been able to look like even as it works through this quarterback situation. I'm guessing the leash is going to be relatively tight for Jackson Dart, but then again, maybe it won't because – Let's not forget when Matt Corral had his five and six interception games back in 2020, one of the things that he said afterwards going into 2021 and why his confidence was so high was that Kiffin stuck with him. He didn't bench him in those games. And I wonder how Jackson Dart will be treated in that regard. If this is really going to be his job moving forward, and if there will be this trust in him to be able to make some of those tough decisions. They've got Kentucky coming up in a couple of weeks. 
Could that be a team that exposes him? Could that be a team that maybe makes Lane reverse his decision yet again and turn to Luke Altmaier? I don't know. But the good news, if you're Ole Miss, is that ground game looks good. The defense has been way better than I thought it was going to be. We'll wait and see how that plays out against SEC competition. Again, I think it's been a bit limited so far with some of the offenses that they face, but really like what we've seen even after they lost DJ Durkin. And I do think at the very least, you can be one-dimensional. And there are a lot of teams right now that don't really have any dimensions. <laughs> they would love to have a dimension as good as Ole Miss's ground game. Vandy, Northern Illinois, you know the one thing I liked. Vandy hit the over on two and a half wins. It happened. Good for Vandy. Good for Vandy. I did not think the day would come in 2022, much less in mid-September. <laughs> Credit those doors, pop the champagne. History books will probably bypass the fact that Rocky Lombardi got hurt in this one, the Northern Illinois quarterback. But the history books will remember that A.J. Swan is the second coming of Jay Cutler, <laughs> apparently. He had uh, some throws in this game where you were just kind of blown away. And on a day in which we didn't think that he was going to be the starter, I, I went back and I was trying to find stuff from the Vandy beat reporters to see – did, did that? Did I just miss this one? Did we get some sort of announcement a midweek from Clark Lee that he was going to be the guy? And nope. Uh, Clark Lee had told the media that Mike Wright would be the starter. And then, don't you know, AJ Swan is out there throwing dimes as a true freshman. I did say in the midweek pod that it was interesting seeing Vandy's official account tweet out the video of Swan throwing darts in practice. But apparently that, that was... That was a sign that he was going to be the guy. My whole thing with holding off on him was, and, and in general, I, if you're listening to this, like I don't care about the Vandy quarterback situation. This is just a quarterback one, true freshman discussion in general that I often have is I don't want my true freshman starter to get killed behind a bad offensive line. We've seen the way that that can play out at times for certain guys and the way that it impacts them long-term. I think you look at a Bo Nix, you look at a Christian Hackenberg, you look at... You know, Jaden Daniels was good in year one, but you do kind of wonder if he picked up some bad habits. Um, and I do think that that can impact a, a kid that's trying to develop and trying to be able to work through his progressions when everything is sped up so much. But credits won because Northern Illinois won the MAC last year. I said nobody gets out of DeKalb alive. Vandy just got out of Northern Illinois alive. And he didn't get sacked once in this game. He had the one play where he somehow escaped two rushers. He regrouped, then he hits Ray Davis in the end zone. And you're thinking to yourself, dang, okay. Look at you, Vandy. That'll translate in SEC play, maybe. I don't know if that means Vandy's getting an SEC win this year, but at least you feel like you have a guy. Strange to see the way that this has played out after Mike Wright was really good those first two weeks, was bad against Wake Forest, and is just like that, out of a job, did not realize the leash was that short for the Vandy starting quarterback. But here we are. Uh, Vandy now gets three consecutive ranked teams, including road games at Bama, at Georgia. Let's see how the conversation shifts with the doors. But, hey, it's all gravy. The over is hit. Two and a half wins. Kiss that goodbye. Vandy's on the up and up. Louisiana Monroe against number two, Alabama. I said in the midweek pod that Bama was number three. I don't know why I did that. Sometimes your boy just beefs up. It happens. Oh, well. Bama's number two. One thing I liked, Will Anderson added something to his Heisman resume. And I am totally aware of how stupid that sounds because the dude had 34 and a half tackles for loss last year, and that wasn't good enough according to voters, to be able to get him to New York. So I do say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but people notice the pick sixes, which Williamson was kind of in the right place at the right time on that one. He turns it upfield just like that, does something he's never done before. Even Kool-Aid McKinstry said to AL.com, yeah, 
Heisman was the first thing that he thought of when he saw Will Anderson take take an interception back to the house. Voters notice that when it's the first time happening in their career, right? Like imagine seeing Charles Woodson score an offensive touchdown for the first time. And all of a sudden voters like, whoa, didn't know he had that in his bag. Why that matters more than a game in which he could have like five tackles for loss. I, I don't know. I think it's a bit overdone. Again, this is a narrative driven award. I think Will Anderson could catch a two point conversion. And there are some voters who would put more stock in that than him having three sacks and totally taking over a game from the defensive side. It's just, it's, it's dumb, but that's the way that this usually works. He might end up with only like 20 or 25 TFLs this year. And there will some who say, well, Will, Will Anderson's regressing. You know, he's, he's just not the player that he was last year, even though they somehow didn't think that he was worthy of getting to New York last year. Still frustrating to talk about. There will some who, who will say the pre-snap penalties and the unnecessary roughness penalty that he had against Texas should have knocked him out of the Heisman race, even though he made the biggest defensive play of the day for Alabama late in that one. People just totally overlooked that. Anyway, Will Anderson still only 50 to one for the Heisman. That's tied for ninth. Last I checked on FanDuel and I, I refreshed that again this morning. He's tied with Hendon Hooker, Jordan Addison, Jameer Gibbs, Drake May. All of those guys are great players, great college players. They're not Will Anderson. There's not. I think he should have the better path to the award. Setson Bennett probably has has the an even more clear path, and his odds have very much changed um, with with this start. And if Georgia goes undefeated, man, they go twelve. If they go twelve and zero, and at least put up a good showing in an SEC championship game, Setson Bennett will have a hard time not winning the Heisman Trophy this year. Akron, number fifteen, Tennessee. The one thing I liked is that Joe didn't get my hopes up. I knew this would be lopsided. I told you my guy, Joe Moorhead, was not going to cover this massive spread in year one. It's going to take a little bit to get the zips right. It's going to take a little bit. Give him time. He's going to get more time than he had at Mississippi State. That's for darn sure. The only question was if Tennessee would perhaps have either the the hangover from Pitt or the, the look ahead to Florida. We would definitely be playing the results if that had happened and if they got off to kind of a slow start. And instead – the balls roll by 60 because this offense basically pretends like it's playing against air. And oftentimes that's pretty much what it looks like. Jalen Hyatt was guarded by air. Air did a pretty bad job of covering him. Sometimes I'll think about how different a game like this would have been under Pruitt. It's a really twisted thought to have. I get it. Tennessee fans. I don't wish that upon you. You should don't do that. I don't do this at home. All right. That's just for me. When, when my mind goes to different places, watching this Tennessee offense and how different it is compared to what Vols fans had to deal with. Pretty much throughout the 2010s, um, I, I just can't help myself. You see the spacing combined with the tempo, and you can't not be impressed. If you haven't watched Tennessee this year, and maybe your your first time getting a chance to watch them is going to be next week against Florida, just watch the way that they have so many different ways to beat you now, and even, even more so than last year. I, I truly feel like Hooker's weapons continue to develop and Hooker is becoming so much more comfortable being able to make that easy read. And it just looks like the game is so slow for him. Of course, the game is pretty slow when you're against Akron. I've given Tennessee's defense praise so far, but I am interested to see what it looks like against that ground attack that Florida has, um, what it looks like if Anthony Richardson can make a few of those big-time plays. Again, Florida fans not holding their breath on seeing that in the passing game, but I think more so in the ground game, 
we feel like this will be a good test for the Tennessee defense. I don't know that they've seen a lot of great quarterback play yet. That's the one thing, the one holdup that I have for this Tennessee defense, because I thought Slovis did some things pretty well until he got hurt in the game um, against Pitt last week. But other than that, Tennessee's opposing quarterbacks were a Pitt backup and two Mac quarterbacks from losing teams. So take that for what it is. This will be really interesting, though. It will, especially if Florida does do what it's supposed to, in my opinion, which is lean on that ground game. 3.30 on CBS, that's going to be a fun one to be able to watch. Kind of a bummer that we only have four SEC games next week. Kind of, I was thinking we were going to get a little bit more than that, and then we didn't. We will have a slightly different preview show to accommodate our two guests, Tim Tebow, Alyssa Lang. They're both going to join me. Looking forward to that. We'll get into a lot of the other stuff, too. I know didn't dig a ton into, into Arkansas about the way that that played out with, with Bobby Petrino and him still remembering how to win in Fayetteville. Although, you know, Hawks took over down the stretch. But we'll have a little bit more kind of breaking down Arkansas's potential weaknesses. But one question that I think is is worth asking, and I guess I should have put this in, in with Tennessee as well, besides Alabama and Georgia, everybody's going to be talking this week, who's the number three team in the SEC? Constant topic of conversation over the summer, still constant topic of conversation right now. Who has the fewest amount of weaknesses? Is it Kentucky? Is it Arkansas? Is it Tennessee? I I would have put maybe maybe you're saying is it Ole Miss? I I would have probably put Mississippi State in that discussion in there as well. But then you see the special teams issues that they had, and you see the offensive line issues that they had, and you're like, ah, you know, they're 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 not on that level just yet. But keep that in mind, and that's something that I'm I'm trying to figure out myself because if you if you ask me that question today, I'd probably say Tennessee, and that's with the skepticism that I have about Tennessee once they face some of these better offenses, some of these veteran quarterbacks that they're going to see in SEC play. But I, I wonder right now with, with Kentucky and Arkansas, some of the potential issues that they could have down the road where Kentucky, once they get Chris Rodriguez back, it's kind of like, okay, now they're really going to be able to take it up to a different level. And we found out during the week that they're going to be able to get him back for that game against Ole Miss. But do they still have some issues potentially with turnovers? Do they still have some issues in special teams? Um, that's that's kind of the, the skepticism that I have for them right now. And then Arkansas's weakness is really obvious. It just is with, with the pass defense and not being able to have those guys in the back end. That play action pass that Petrino drew up on fourth and one where everybody and their mother thought that that they were running the football up the gut and you see them go over the top and it's this touchdown where you're like, Oh my gosh, is Arkansas about to lose to an FCS team? Is this, is this going to happen? But instead it doesn't because rocket Sanders is a freak of nature. Um, But keep that in mind. And that's something that we'll probably have to dig into a little bit more. We're going to do some updated quarterback rankings in a little bit here, which it's difficult to do. I don't like doing those two weeks into the season. I don't. And I, and I know, you know, we, we do them, we do a composite ranking with SDS. I'm not poo-pooing that or any stretch of the imagination, but whenever I have to send mine over, I'm always sitting there thinking to myself, can I really, can I really give this guy credit for being able to, to throw it all over the place against an FCS team? I still have some questions about it, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll do some updated quarterback rankings as well. Um, 
maybe not in the midweek pod. Maybe we'll do it after. Maybe we'll do it as a as an end of show thing with next week's pod as well. We'll get Will back for the midweek pod and we'll be business as usual. Like I said, Alyssa Lang, Tim Tebow will be coming up on that. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe, join the Facebook group, your name Red on Air with Figure It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks guys. Talk soon.